Ecclesiastes 5, beginning of verse 8, we're going to talk about money this morning. What the heart loves, it serves. When that little one comes home, uh, think of how you serve her. You give her a bath, you sacrifice your sleep, you dispose of her waste, you feed her special food, you brush her hair, you buy her gifts, you pick up her toys, you dress her up. And you even sacrifice your own sleep. You let her sleep in your own bed. Some of us do. When the heart falls in love, it propels us to serve. But sometimes our love can be out of order. It can be misplaced. For example, you probably just thought I was talking about a little baby girl. And it is true that we can inappropriately love our children, making them our little idols, setting our hopes and our dreams and our successes on their lives. But I was actually describing, if you think back, how many people today love their little dogs. Now, don't get me wrong, uh, Grover, he may be a fine dog, he may be a fine dog you have, but if you love your dog like you love a baby, there's something out of order. A dog and a baby are not the same. There's a disordered love there. Just the other day, I was Driving down the street is the kids and I, and we looked, and there was a baby, or a baby, there was a dog wrapped in a blanket being pushed in a stroller. Now, there's nothing innately wrong with that, it's totally fine, but this may be an indication of a disordered love, of loving a dog like you love a child. So here's the point. This world was made by God, and there's an order to the way he made it. And if we live outside that order... We're heading for trouble. Today we're not talking about dogs, but we are talking about love and disordered love. And we're talking about that all too sensitive subject of money in this topic. Wealth and things and money, they can capture our hearts. It really doesn't matter if you have a lot or a little. It can capture our hearts and they can lead to disordered love. So as we close this year, it's a good time to ask ourselves some questions. How do you feel about money? How are you using your money? Many of us, um, as the end of the year comes, we consider our budgets from the previous year. We consider how we've spent our money. And then we set our budgets for 2021. So now is a good time to consider God's design for money. And as it happens, we're in Ecclesiastes. That's just where we land today. It's about money and wealth and possessions. So the big idea that you're going to see it on the screen up there for today is this. In God's world, money is an unsatisfying lover, but a fine servant. I'll say it again. In God's world, money is an unsatisfying lover, but a fine servant. Our outline is a little bit unique this morning. It's going to be kind of like a bullseye or a target. You've got two concentric rings and then a bullseye in the center. The outer ring is going to be our God's world, and it's going to be chapter 5, verses 8 through 9, and then chapter 6, 10 through 12. The next concentric ring as you move in is unsatisfying lover. This is chapter 5, verses 10 through 17, and then chapter 6, 1 through 9. And then right in the middle, the bullseye, this is uh, fine servant, chapter 5, 18 through 20. That'll be our outline for this morning. So we begin with God's world. Tools are designed for a purpose. Steve Pastouche, he got a chainsaw for Christmas. I was jealous. There's a, there's a way you're supposed to use a chainsaw. You're supposed to sharpen the blade. You're supposed to oil it. If you use your chainsaw as an axe, it's not going to last very long. Something is going to break. And like 
uh, tools designed by people, God has designed this world with order. And when we seek to live outside of this order, pain and suffering generally ensues. So let me read verses 8 and 9 of chapter 5. If you see a province, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. The preacher of Ecclesiastes has been going through this book. We've seen he's a very keen observer of life. He's an observer of the world. And he begins this section by exposing the right way and the wrong way to use authority and how to rule. God has designed authority for good purposes and how it ought to be used. But we see in verse 8, we see the opposite. The wealthy and the powerful are violating the poor and the powerless. The stronger is bullying the weaker. And it's even, even, like, even, even greater oppresses those under them. A kind of ripple effect. Those who are under are always being oppressed. And I think we can each understand that. From early age, we see oppression as we're just on the playground. You see the bigger bully picking on the little kid. But that we also know it spreads um, to all aspects of society. We see the a citizen being oppressed by the nation-state in various places. It's all over. And sadly, this is the sad part, most of us have either been on, have been on either side of this. Sometimes we've been the oppressed, and other times we've actually been the oppressors in the lives of others. So the preacher reminds us that there is a way to make gain, to prosper. And it's well-defined by God, and it is, through, it is not through the oppression that we often observe. God's authority over mankind, the way God rules, is the model for all of creation. He sets the correct pattern for how human authority is supposed to work. And in the world that's designed by him, the greater is actually supposed to work for the benefit of the lesser. The ruler, the governor, should not enslave, but reward an economy of hard, honest work. We see this in verse 9 where it says, A king that's committed to cultivated fields. When the governor encourages diligent and upright, honest work, the whole nation is benefited. Laziness is usually diminished. Tyranny is despised. A people, a nation that are working according to God's design will find gain. Righteous and just leaders in conjunction with honest and diligent work is the way God intended this life to be. There is a best way And that way is the way that God made the world to be. Now let's jump down to chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. The point point is made very clear here as we close this outer ring. Let me read those verses. Chapter 6, 10 through 12. Whatever has come to be has already been named. And And it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage of man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell what will be after him under the sun? Ecclesiastes is very encouraging at times. <laughs> this verse, these verses make it very clear that God is sovereign over all. In verse 10, he is the, he is the only one who knows what to come. And he's the only one who can, can tell uh, what is to be. 
He's the only one who knows man. He's the only one who knows inside of man. And comparative to God, man is powerless. Therefore, the preacher points out that God is the one who defines this world and the way this world should be lived. And so, he wants to ask us a few rhetorical questions. He wants to awaken our sleeping minds, because sometimes we can forget about that. So, in verse 11, he asks, What advantage does man gain by many words of debate with God? When we talk a whole lot, does it help anything? No, nothing is gained. (laughs) It's an obvious answer. The reasoning and argumentation of people is fruitless before God. There's no reason to debate. We can be irrational about that, but that's just the way it is. And then in verse 12, he asks another question. Who knows what is good for man? What's the answer to that? It's God. God knows what is best for man. And he, has, he, pl- he knows the plans of man. He's the experience of people. He knows what is best. He makes those things come to pass. Since man is passing over only a few days, God is eternal. God knows um, God knows man, he knows what is best for man. And then finally it says, who can tell, in verse 12 again, who can tell man what is to come? Again, only God. The point here should be just very clear. It is vain, it is foolish to believe that we should define how we ought to live. Though often we as people try to do that. We are not God, this is not our world, God made it. And we try to live, when we try to live outside these bounds, there are natural consequences that it will ensue. The, if we think back to those previous two verses in chapter 5, when a government works to promote cultivated fields, that's honest hard work, as God designed, the country normally prospers and people honor their leaders. When men and women reject laziness and give themselves to hard, honest work as God purpose, they normally increase and receive praise from their supervisors. This is the way that God has designed the world. As a child, I had chores to do when my parents uh, left for work. And by the time they got home, I had to complete those chores. It may be mowing the lawn, it could be washing the dishes, it could be cleaning up around the house, whatever the case may be. I usually didn't like it, but I knew that's what I was supposed to do. My parents were not tyrants, but they expected honest, hard work before they got home. And as a child, I learned rather slowly, I should have learned faster, that when I did those things, it went well for me. When I didn't go those things, what happened? It didn't go so well. Life was harder. This is the principle of God's design, and it should be applied to all of our life. Let me ask you this. Do you recognize God's design for this world? And then do you try to live according to that way that is best. Do you recognize his design and then you seek to live according to that way? Children, how are you doing in honoring your parents? Because God has designed it that way. Have you noticed that when you don't respect your parents, it leads to difficulty? When you do respect them, there's great blessing in it? Let me give you another example that's a little more controversial. It'll set set the stage for our, our talk about love. Today is considered intolerant to say that marriage is only between a man and a woman. Since the story is that all love is love, why should only a man and a woman get married? Is that true, though? Is it true that all love is love? Well, I can confidently say no, because God is the one who defines this world and designed this world. And he made it so the commitment of marriage and sex is between one man and one woman. 
When we, when we try to go outside that bound, there is consequences and natural consequences that are, 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 are seen that happen. Love isn't always just love. Love can be misplaced. There's an order to the way that God defined love. We could think of not just that example, but many examples. And the one we're going to be talking about today is specifically about money. This world is, has an order. So again, do you recognize God's design for this world? And do you seek to live according to the way that is best? Or do you take a chainsaw and try to use it as an axe or a wrench and try to use it as a hammer? Be sure that inevitably those things will cause brokenness. So that's our outer ring, God's world. Let's move into our next ring. Let's focus down to a more specific application of this principle with money and wealth and things. I'm going to read chapter 5, verse 10 to begin our second ring, unsatisfying lover. Money is an unsatisfying lover. Chapter 5, verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. This year, uh, one of my wife's uh, stocking stuffers was a mirror. And now my wife is very beautiful, um, but she would find me quite odd if I would if she stuck a peek of that mirror, and then I began to kiss the mirror and hug the mirror and whisper to the mirror. Um, she would probably be more concerned than you are. <laughs> she might call the doctor, but since she's a patient wife, she might remind me that the genuine article is much better than the mirror, and I would be much more satisfied without the mirror. The mirror is a tool to see my love. It should not receive my love. The, mo- the, the mirror is a tool to see my love. It should, not, I shouldn't, it, sh- it should not receive my love. Money, it can be very attractive. It can catch our eye. Wealth can. The power to have whatever we want, it really can be enticing. A new car, a new house, the latest gadget or phone that pretty ring, the perceived security of having a large savings account or 401k, this can be really alluring to us. Not having to worry about the economy when it tanks or when we lose a job. But as attractive as money can be, money is an unsatisfying lover. Verse 10 tells tells us he who loves money is going to be disappointed. She who loves wealth is going to be unsatisfied. Why? Because it's, it's passing. It's vain. The preacher knows the draw of money here in Ecclesiastes. And he sees the consequences of loving money. Therefore, he wants to put money in the right perspective for us. To understand God's design for it. What, what it's supposed to be used for. But first, he begins by giving us the ways to look at what it can never be for us. What never, money can never be for us. The preacher gives us four ways that the money is that money is an unsatisfying lover. And we'll look at those four ways. The first is this. Money is never enough. There's never enough money. Let's look at verses 11 and 12. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner by but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. 
Verses 11 and 12 compare the owner and the laborer. And while you might think that the owner, since he has all the wealth and the power, he would be at rest, while the laborer, he's dead tired and never gets any rest. He doesn't get a good night's sleep. It's actually the laborer who gets a good night's sleep, it says here. For the laborer can work a good, honest, hard day's work and then go home. He doesn't have to worry about what's happening at the workplace. Well, the owner has more responsibility and more worries that he must take home. He has more possessions that he has to care for and maintain. And he has workers that he has to pay and he's responsible for. He may have a full stomach because he has lots of money, but he isn't able to rest. Money can't buy that. The Lord, again, he's blessed Heather, myself, and the kids with a wonderful home. We're very thankful for it. But it seems like, and this may be true for you, is every week or so something is breaking. Actually, when this morning, Heather texted me and said, our, our fire alarms are going off in the house. And we don't know what's going on. There's always something that's breaking. Last week, it was, um, uh, it was our garage door opener broke. This week, the microwave broke. Now the fire alarms. There's always something that seems to be breaking. Now, it's true. I'm thankful for the things we have. But more things means more problems. And more money cannot solve this problem. In fact, it adds to the burden. More workers cannot solve this problem. They mean more responsibility. Personal increase comes with burdens that money cannot relieve. I think of it this way. Uh, it's generally true that if you make $50,000 a year and you make $100,000 a year, both people generally spend all that they make. It's just what happens. Finance people call this lifestyle inflation. It refers to spending. As you increase your income, you increase your spending. They proportionally increase. So at the end of the day, both people have spent all their money. We increase our lifestyle as we increase our money. Money and possessions don't equate to rest. They actually equate to quite the opposite. Money is an unsatisfying lover, for you can never have her. She always goes for other admirers. She keeps you at a distance. If you think you have her, you will soon be disappointed. There is never enough money. So that's the first one. And second, money is an unsatisfying lover for riches they cannot be kept. They cannot be kept. Let's look at chapter 5, verses 13 through 17. The preacher says this, There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. We know... That when a woman breathes her last breath, every earthly possession will be forfeited. It will no longer be hers. All the work and the toil and the labor that she has performed to earn those things, it's all gone. We all know this, but we need this reminder because things, they really can seduce us. The riches of this life are like sand in your hand. The harder you grasp them, the more they slip through your fingers. They can go with a burst or they can go with a trickle. 
but the loss of them is inevitable. It's like sand in your hand. Some experience this life, this loss within their lifetime. In verse 14, the riches were lost in a bad venture. He, and he had nothing to, uh, to, to give to his son as an inheritance. While others, they amass a fortune and they keep it until the moment of their, the end of their life. That's in verse 15. But either way, a man or a woman's riches, they cannot be kept. The preacher calls this a grievous evil. He is pained by what he sees. Just think of this last year and how there were many businesses that were prospering and what it seemed to be a guaranteed good thing slipped away. It, it perished. It, it went away within a year. While other businesses, they weren't doing so well. They were doing okay. And because of the economy changes, they're now booming because of the, this new setting. In either case, though, this money cannot be kept. People cannot take it with them. Early in Ecclesiastes, the preacher told us that God has placed eternity in our hearts. This is Ecclesiastes 3.11. We want our lives to count for more than the here and now. So the fact that all of our possessions will be lost should be evidence that loving money is unsatisfactory to us. Think of your favorite Christmas gift from two days ago. The one you long for. Be thankful for it, but let it be a reminder that you can't take it with you. Nothing can be kept. So, our first reason that money is an unsatisfactory lover is because it's never enough. Our second is it can't be kept. And then third, money is an unsatisfying lover because wealth is impotent. Wealth is impotent. Let's read chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. That's the third time he's said that. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place." Jason and Amy McGuire, they gave the Spagnolos some tasty food for Christmas. That was a good choice. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, but it would have been a, a frustrating gift if, if, gift if Amy would have given me the best paintbrush that money can buy. A paintbrush in Amy's hand creates a work of art. A paintbrush in my hand, it's a shame. Possessing the brush wouldn't make me an artist or lead to a better painting. I would be better with a Crayola paint set. The tool doesn't give me the power to use it. It would be exasperating, it would be frustrating to have that tool but have no power to use it. Food, again, was a much better choice. In the same way, possession of wealth does not ensure enjoyment from that wealth. 
The possession of wealth does not ensure the enjoyment from that wealth. You need the ability to enjoy it, and money cannot buy that ability. God gives the ability to have enjoyment. That's his gift when he wants to give it. The preacher makes this point with a much more heart-wrenching illustration. Some of you have experienced the sadness of losing a child through miscarriage. And it's hard to speak of that experience without, you know, reliving the grief and the pain of it. The preacher speaks of the stillborn child, but he doesn't do so to make cause us more pain, but to emphasize the sadness of a life searching for rest and wealth. To live many years, have a full life, but be in torment and turmoil and grief without ever finding any joy, it's worse than a life that's been cut too short. It's really a mystery that God will give length of days and wealth to some and not to others. There's some that have so much money they cannot spend it in a lifetime. And there's some who live into their 90s, have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. But possessing wealth or length of days is a curse rather than a blessing if it cannot be enjoyed. Notice that three times in this this section of this text, the preacher identifies the the futility of possessing and not enjoying. In verse 2, he says there's just no power to enjoy. In verse 3, he says not satisfied with life's good things. And then in verse 6, he says enjoy no good thing. He calls this experience vain, and he contrasts that with the life of the stillborn child. The preacher says, the life of the child who did not have to experience the turmoil and frustration of possessing something but not enjoying it is actually better off. And he says, for this short life, at least that short life has rest with God, it says in verse 5. Money and wealth and progeny, children, are unsatisfactory lovers because they're impotent to give you joy. They're powerless Only God can give joy. Don't be, I think we can be, look at the news or watch people, or just even friends. Don't be deceived with the opulence of the wealthy and seeing their lifestyle. There are many who have had it all and have not been happy, and there are many who have had very little who have have resounded with joy in their hearts. So first, let's review. Money is an unsatisfying lover because there's never enough. Second, it cannot be kept Third is impotent to create joy. And then fourth and finally, money is an unsatisfying lover for it leaves us pining. It leaves you pining. Let's read chapter 6, verses 7 through 9. All the toil of man is for his mouth. It is appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and is striving after wind. Our appetites are helpful ways to understand the accumulation of wealth. Uh, like many of you, on Christmas Day, we had lots of uh, tasty food, followed by dessert, and then dessert again. Um, Carol Skaggs, she made this, um, she made, made, made eating, she made it a pleasure. She made this cake, and it was a, a forest of Christmas trees. And we each got to eat our own green Christmas tree. It tasted good, it looked good, and by the end, I was full. But, by the time I got home, it was 9.30 p.m., and my appetite was already wandering. <laughs> Anybody had that experience? 
My first inclination was to grab some Christmas chocolate. I did resist, and I grabbed a handful of, of nuts. The appetite, it always comes back. We cannot eat enough, it just keeps coming. And this is the same that's true with money. It always leaves you pining for more. There are periods where you feel satisfied, but again, like a magnet draws you in, money does the same thing. The preacher said it is better to be content with what you have, as you see in verse 9. What you can see is better than what you have to long for. No matter who you are, wise or foolish, it's the same way for all people, it says in verse 10. Our appetites are never satisfied, and it is vain to attempt to satisfy them to do so. For wealth and possessions and money, they always leave us pining. Money is an unsatisfactory lover, for there is never enough. It cannot be kept. It's impotent to give us happiness, and it always leaves us pining for more. Church family, brothers and sisters, friends, this is God's world. And he made us as people who love, but we have a tendency to have misplaced loved. love. Money was not intended by God to be our love. It's a heartbreaker. It's an unsatisfactory lover. Therefore, money needs to be used. It is, needs to be used in the way that God designed it to be used. And this is our final point as we move into the center of our text. Chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. It's a fine servant. A fine servant. Let me read verses 18 through 20. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. This is God's world, but it's a dying world. It's dying because of sin. Human sin has resulted in God cursing his own world. This is why there's pain, there's suffering, there's difficulty, there's troubles. And the most tragic part of the curse of this world is death itself. Every man and woman has only a few days under the sun. And then comes death. These days at time, times, I can attest to it, they can seem very long. But when the end comes, they are known to be very few. Even so, God's curse upon sin in this world did not end all of joy. God is still gracious to sinners and he allows them to experience enjoyment and rejoicing. There are successes that we experience. There's love that we have. There's beauty. There's wonder. And I'm sure that each of us maybe experienced some of that during this Christmas season. There might have been some difficult things, but you experienced some of that joy that God gives. So how does this relate to money? Well, according to verses 18 through 20, wealth and possessions and power are servants of joy that God gives. They're tools to be used to provide for ourselves and others, and as a mean to enjoy the pleasure of life, the pleasures of life in this troubled world. God designed men and women to work hard and to enjoy the fruit of their labors, to work an honest day and then to be able to relax and enjoy what was given, to taste a wonderful meal, to be refreshed 
by a drink and to provide for your family and others in need. Money is God's servant, so you might give a thoughtful gift to a friend or a loved one and to see their joy as they receive it and open it. The gift of joy is from God. He gives it. Money is but a servant of God, a servant for that joy. My parents, they bought um, Seth a hoverboard for Christmas. He's wanted one for quite some time. Um, It wasn't inexpensive, I'll I'll say that. And he uh, is really enjoying riding on it. Um, I tried it yesterday. um, I'm glad I'm still here. (laughs) My parents used their hard-earned money to bring their grandson some joy. If they loved money, they wouldn't have given him the gift. And they would have missed the enjoyment of seeing him have the pleasure in the gift. In addition, Seth would have enjoyed the, or missed the thrill of the ride. At the same time, if Seth places his affection, his love upon the hoverboard and not upon his grandparents, he's missing the gift of something much greater, his grandparents. Money and things are servants of joy. They're not the thing to be loved. They're servants. The problem of loving the servant and missing the giver is it's really a common theme in Scripture. And one verse, one section of Scripture really points to it the most. is Paul, he says in the New Testament, same way as the preacher does here in 1 Timothy 6.10, he writes this, For the love of money, you know it, is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. God is the giver. We see it multiple times here in verses 18 through 20. And we see that in giving, he, he, he does it with abundance and graciousness. But money is a root of all kinds of evil because it's a counterfeit. Money is itself is a counterfeit. It seduces our affections, and it seduces our affections away from God, who really is the genuine article. God made you to enjoy him and love him and live for him forever. But you can't do this if you're loving money. It's caused many to leave God altogether, money has, and wealth and possessions. So how do you love God and use money as a servant? I'm going to give you two ways. First, you must give your money away. And second, you must give it a job. First, you must give your money away. Second, you must give it a job. Our use of money isn't only about the here and now. Our use of money is actually, it's spiritual. How you relate to money tells a lot about your soul. When Jesus came into the world, he emptied himself of everything. He became poor. And when Jesus called his disciples, he called them to leave everything. Because money and wealth and power are so seductive, they must be surrendered when coming to Christ and living for Christ. The cost of discipleship, of following Jesus, is death to self, to surrender all of our lives, including our money and possessions. We must acknowledge that all is his and give him full control of it. Jesus, he gave up the riches of heaven and became poor. He gave everything then here on the earth, even to the point of death, so that you and I might be rich toward God. The good news that we proclaim as a church, which is the gospel, is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, 
Yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8.9 The first step in making money your servant is by giving it up to Christ. You deny the affections of earthly money for the love of Christ. And in so doing, you gain the riches of Christ. Have you surrendered everything to Christ? Do you give him full control of your life, including your finances? If so, if you straightaway begin again today by allowing Christ to set all of your financial plans and dump, just like you dump an old lover, that unsatisfying lover money, give it away. The second step to making money your servant is to give it a job. Since everything is God's, and you are too, your money's job is to work for God. The specific way in which your money, your particular money, your finances, we all have different um, talents and skills, capability and resources, is unique to you. And so each of us gets to search God's word. We get to pray, talk with others, and use wisdom to determine how God would direct me to use the finances he's given me as just a steward of his money. He will guide you in that. Personally, I've found it very helpful to have a, a budget to ensure that the money that God has given me, it serves a purpose. And that instead of the, for the money to serve a purpose rather than me serving my money. Budget gives you a plan. It helps you to guide. It's helpful to determine um, ahead of time how much you will spend on certain necessities, on your entertainment, on your savings, on church, on charities. By planning ahead, you can know if your money is accomplishing the job it was set to do. That job is to serve the Lord. Now, I'll say this. Budgets aren't set in stone. Life is uncertain. Think of just this past year. It's very helpful, though, to have a plan so you set yourself on the right path that your money is being used for purposes that God would have you use them for. You assign your money a job so it accomplishes the end goal of working for God. Heather and I, we've set our budget since we were first married. It's been a very blessing. I can, I can attest to that. It's been a blessing to us. And it's helped us to use our money in a way that's been helpful to um, our family and to ourselves and to the church, we wouldn't be able to serve the Lord in the same way if we hadn't planned over time. But, like many of us, this last year, 2020, our budget was quite a bit different than it should have been. <laughs> it was just different. And because we had a plan ahead of time, though, it helped us at least set a path for where we were going. Budgets are helpful. I've been encouraged that the last few years that we as a church have worked together to establish a budget that helps us as a church know how we're going to use our funds that God has given us, blessed us, for his work. So, how do you make money a fine servant? Well, first you give it away. You surrender your life to Christ. And second, you give it a job working for Christ. I would say this to you. If any of you need help, if you need help, working with your money and trying to find a way that you can do it best for the Lord. There are numbers of people here, members of the church, would willing to be help you with that. Please talk to one of the elders. I would love to talk to you. You can call the church office. It's a perfect time as we move into a new year to set your finances in a way that helps serve and follow the Lord. In closing, this is God's world. He made it. 
And he made it in a way that we get to love, but at times we can have illegitimate lovers. The love of money is one of them that has hurt many. But money is also a servant that can bring joy from God to yourself, to your family, to your friends, to others. I want to encourage you as you close. A number of you have asked this question. You've asked the question, who is in need right now and how can I help? That's a sign that you're getting it. That you're getting it. You're using your money for God's purposes. You're using your money as a tool to help others and for joy. How do you feel about money? How are you using your money? These are spiritual questions that reveal a lot about your faith in Christ. Keep asking those questions. Put your money to work for God. And I pray as each of us, as we enter the new year, God will bring joy through us to others, to our families, to ourselves. Let's pray together. Lord, we uh, begin by admitting the temptation to love money, to um, want to gain and possess and to hold on to certain things and want things that we don't necessarily need. At the same time, Lord, we're thankful for your provision, your blessing, and how you give us joy in this life, and you allow us to have things that are just fun, like a hoverboard. (laughs) We give you praise, God, for your graciousness to us. Lord, help us to use what you've given us for your glory, for your good, Lord, for the joy of others. Lead and guide us, Lord. Help us to pray and to seek you and to know just in which way how you would use the, the 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 funds and the finances and the possessions you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen.